you've not been here for the last few weeks, that's okay. We haven't either. Um, but um, we've, been in, we've been in a series uh, kind of on and off. It's been a bit higgledy-piggledy and a bit, um, bit in-betweens, and, and there's been some breaks in it. But um, I've been looking at this thing of foreshadowing and this concept of how characters and um, even things sometimes, inanimate things, point us towards Jesus, point us towards the coming of this Messiah. And, and for the Jewish nation, this was their, for Israel, this was their great hope, was this Messiah that they were, were going to be expecting to come and deliver the nation. And there is so much, it's so rich, and we've just looked at a few characters, and um, today we're going to look at another one, but on, on how those characters foreshadow Jesus. And, and by foreshadow, what we mean is like, it's, it's like when you see, and the, the best picture I could come up with is like when you're walking up to the corner of a building, and the sun is on the other side of the building, and there's someone walking that way, and so the sun is at their back, you kind of, you see their shadow coming around the corner before you see them. And so you can see, oh, look, there's a person coming. Let's not walk into them. And it's, you, you can't tell who they are. And like a shadow doesn't really tell you your, like your eye color or your race. Or sometimes you can't see if it's a male or a female. Or, you know, but you can see it's a person. And so that's kind of what foreshadowing is like in the Old Testament, where we, we get this kind of early and progressive then revelation of who Jesus is through sometimes things like the tabernacle or um, various, you know, the, the Passover lamb and a, a lot of other things. And, and through people in the Old Testament, they all kind of foreshadow elements of Jesus, uh, uh, who he would be and what his ministry would be like when he came. And um, so this morning, we're going to be looking at David. And um, David's a nice obvious one, and I've left it till last because it is kind of the most obvious one. Um, and we'll see why. If you don't know the story of David, I'll, I'll run a little bit into it just now. But maybe just to, to start off with, is um, I, love, I love DIY. So I love fixing stuff. You know, DIY, do it yourself. We ran a party the other day for some 12-year-old kids, and they didn't know what DIY was. We're trying to get them to find the DIY shop in St. Lucia. And, and uh, I was like, DIY. And they're like, does it? Yes. No. Like, do it yourself. So it's when you do handyman work, and you do it yourself. So when you, like, fix stuff, I'm just explaining to some of the kids. Um, so I love doing that. I, I love tools. I love, the, I love having the right tools that go with that. Uh, I got a, a new tool for my birthday, and it was amazing. It was a drill with a set, and I know some of you are like, that's lame, but it was amazing for me. I've wanted it for a long time, and it was, it was incredible. Um, so it's, it's like one of the best presents I've had in a long time. But, um, and you know, the cool thing about DIY is you can look at it, and you'd be like, like, that didn't exist this morning. Like, that shelf wasn't there this morning. I made that. Like, I put that up. Like, that was me. I drilled the holes, I hammered it in, I leveled it with the spirit level, everything. And my wife's happy. It's, it's like a double bonus. Or, or like sometimes you look at something and like that used to be broken, but now it's fixed. You know, and I think one of the greatest gifts my, my dad ever gave me was like, have a go. Whenever something was broken, take it apart and see if you can fix it. And it's incredible how often stuff gets fixed if you do that. If you just have it, like it's broken already, I can't break it anymore. Sometimes there's bits and pieces left over because they over-engineer things, but it works. But you see, the thing about DIY is it gives you, it gives you a sense of control and a sense of like achievement in, in what you've done to make something or to fix something yourself. And, and I think one of, the, one of the great problems we face as people is that we are, we are DIYing our lives. And what I mean by that is that we are, we are doing it yourself in our lives. And we shouldn't. So when we look at David, we're going to see 
what happens with a man who's fully reliant on God. Now, David, to be fair, um, makes, some, makes some poor choices in his life. And those are moments when he's DIYing. He, he, he didn't go to God and ask, like, should I sleep with that man's wife? He, he avoided God, and he avoided what he should be doing, and he was DIYing his life. And so we, we'll see through, through David how Christ is foreshadowed. And he is kind of the most obvious foreshadower of Jesus in the Old Testament. Um, it's probably a close call with Moses, um, but for me, David is, is the most obvious. And so as, as we've looked at some of those, those people who foreshadowed Christ, we've said that, that Christ is foreshadowed over and over again in the Old Testament. And, and a lot of what is foreshadowed is kind of the three offices or three areas of Jesus's ministry, which is prophet, priest, and king. And those were the three things in the nation of Israel that God established over time for the, for the whole and, and healthy functioning of them as a nation. Three, three distinct areas of their nation, the prophets, the priests, and the king, who would serve the nation, lead the nation, and make sure that the people stayed following hard after God. And Christ fulfills all three of those vital functions of the functioning of, of his people as prophet, priest, and king. So the, as we've looked at them, we've, we focus mainly on the prophet and the priest. And so today, as we look at David, it's gonna, we're going to kind of look mostly at the, the kingly part of Jesus's ministry. And da- David, as I said, is quite rounded, but um, we're going to look at the kingly part of Jesus's ministry and what that means for us. And so ways that David obviously foreshadows Jesus, and there's some like, just practical similarities in their life, is that you know, David was a shepherd. He started out as a shepherd boy. That's how he was found. That's where we come across the story as he's out being a shepherd for his dad and the family looking after the sheep. And Jesus obviously is the great shepherd. Both were born in, in Bethlehem, so a town of relative obscurity, not like the main high point, not the greatest place to be born. Um, both of them were despised by their brothers or the, the people in the nation. Both were seen as, initially were seen as weak in the eyes of their enemies. Uh, both win major battles on behalf of others and um, David, as a, as a phenomenal military and, and political leader, unites the nation. Uh, the nation was divided. The kingdom was divided, Judah and Israel, and he unites them under one, sets up Jerusalem as the, as the capital, brilliant um, political move. And Christ, through his ministry, brings unity and um, brings unity into the ultimate division between us and God. And, and we can go on and on. There's lots of those little similarities, but those are the main ones that we looked. And so... Um, David, and, and there really are a lot of kind of things of going, this is what Jesus is going to be like. And so we're going to look mainly at the story of David and Goliath. And uh, if you've been in kids' church for a while, if you ever were in kids' church, you'll, you'll know the story of David and Goliath. And um, what happens, it's in 1 Samuel 17. We get to the nation of Israel. They've got Saul as their king. They've come to Samuel the prophet, and they've said, hey, we want a king. We want to be like the other nations. Samuel gets upset. He feels like they've rejected him as their leader. God says, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. Don't worry about it. They set in Saul as their king, and um, Saul was a head taller than everyone else. He's the kind of like real type A, good-looking personality, the, the person you would pick as your leader. You know, this is our guy. He was quite a, quite a good fighter, quite a good military leader at times. And we get to the point now in 1 Samuel 17, David has been anointed. Um, Saul has made some some poor errors and judgment, and, and God has said he's going to choose David as the next king. Samuel the prophet has anointed him. And we get to this moment where the Israelites and their neighbors and enemies, the Philistines, are doing battle. 
And so they are camped on either side of the valley of Elah, and they are going at each other, this little battle. And so what they would do before the nations fought each other, just to kind of, I think it was like a practical thing of like, let's try and spare people. It's like, okay, you send your biggest guy, and we'll send our biggest guy, and they'll fight. And the best of the best kind of moment there, and then like, whoever wins is the winner. Yeah, and so we're good with that. And that's how nations would sometimes start off battles. And then it would sometimes devolve into a full-blown war if the, the losing side wouldn't accept. And they were like, no, well, actually, we've got like double the people, so we're still going to fight you. Um, but this is, what, this is where we get to. So these two nations, and the, the Philistine champion, Goliath, is down in the valley, and he's shouting these obscenities at Israel and calling God all sorts of names. And now Goliath was a real big guy. Um, there's funny measurements in the Bible of like cubits and things like that, and we don't use those anymore. Uh, I try to look, there's no tape measures at Midas with those on. But essentially, Goliath was nine and a half feet tall, is how it was. So he had, he had a problem finding shoes, but he was a, he was a really big guy. So this, this massive, and he, was, he had a spear that like the head of the spear weighed like seven kilos, and so he had like a shot put for a spear thing, and he was just, it was ridiculous the size of, of this chap. And so you can imagine going up against a guy like that in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Nobody was really keen to get out there and fight Goliath. And this is the, the kind of high point for today, and I'm going to get it out there early because if you remember nothing else, remember this, is that you can't win the battles you are going to face sometimes in your life. The Lord must fight it and win them for you. I'm going to say it again. You can't win the battles that you're going to face sometimes in your life. Some of them you'll win, the small ones. But the major things, and we're going to get into what those are, you need the Lord to fight some of those things for you. Goliath coming against Israel, coming out into the valley and, and being kind of this just flat-out challenge to the nation of Israel is a great picture of Israel's failure at DIYing their own lives. So... They've, they've obviously chosen Saul. And 1 Samuel 8 verse 20, it says, we want this king so that we can be like other nations. And we want this king who will lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. So this is what they say to the people of, to, to Samuel. The people say to Samuel, this is the king we want, to lead us and to go out and fight our battles for us. But where is their leader? He's sitting in the camp. He's got his armor. He's got everything there. He's, but he's not the one going out and fighting for them. Because he also can see, Yo, their, their guy's a bit bigger. I mean, Saul like a head taller, but Goliath like nine. You see the exaggeration of what's going on there. They're going, you pick, this, you pick this person who's your champion. But what happens when the other nation's champion is bigger than our champion? What happens when those things that are coming against me are just more than what I can do on my own? You see, one of the problems we face today, and it's, uh, unfortunately it's a problem we face for many thousands of years, is short-term memory loss. And I don't mean forgetting where your keys are or why you walked into the kitchen, but meaning that we, we, we're, we're, we're slow to learn and quick to forget. Now, there's a, there's, as an example from Israel's history, and to be fair, it's, it's from a long time before, but there's been, from that moment on, God gave them many lessons over and over again to trust Him, not to look to themselves, but to trust Him. And the first and most obvious one comes out of Exodus chapter 14, verses 12 to 15. And the Israelites have come out of Egypt. They've left this amazing thing, the ten plagues, this great deliverance. They've got all this wealth from the Egyptians. God set them out. They get out. The first battle they face, the first barrier they come up against is the Red Sea. 
this impossible giant they face. The Egyptian army closing in behind them, figuratively between a rock and a hard place. And they turn to Moses and they say to him, didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Incredible. Incredible. God has set a people who have been enslaved for 400 years. He sets them free in a night. And they go, man, this is hard. We want to go back to slavery. How often do we do that, friends? Jesus comes and sets us free from something. And the moment we face a little bit of discomfort, a little bit of just pushback from the enemy, we're like, no, nope, no, nope, it's better. I'm going back to the ways I used to know. I'm just going to go back over here and you can keep that stuff. So often we turn back at the first sign of difficulty. But Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. You see, those things we see is such big. And so the rest of the story goes on. God tells Moses, you know, the stick and the sea parts. The people walk through. The sea closes on the Egyptian army. God delivers them. Incredible moment in Israel's history. A massive lesson for them. And they're so quick to forget. And God says, tell these stories to your children so that they'll remember. Remind yourselves and remind your children of what's happened. So that we learn. So that when they come up against these battles, you see, God sees this thing and he's like, why are you crying out to me? Just go on. I already have a plan. I have, I'm not, I didn't, oh, cheap as the Red Sea. It's not like God was like, oh, who put that there? He knew. He knew it was there. And he's going, just keep going. Trust me. I want your faith to be in me, not in what you see around you. Don't look at the things around you and go, oh, it's a, it's a little like that chicken. What? The sky is falling. Chicken little. That's how we get sometimes. First sign of problems. And we're like, the sky is falling. We're all going to die. And God says, stop crying out to me. Just go on. Keep doing what I've told you to do. But you see, despite the Lord showing himself, as faithful to the nation over and over. And it, I mean, the, the examples continue on through their history of God just being faithful to them as a nation. The Israelites still want to do it their own way, to be masters, to have the, to have the I know best attitude. No, no, we know how to do this, Lord. Don't you worry. Thank you for getting us here, but we'll take it from here. See, the Lord comes through for us in ways we never expected, and we rejoice. And then sometimes, just like moments or days later, we're whining about our troubles again complaining about the lack in our lives, when all along God's got us, if we will simply surrender to his leading and his guiding. And this is our great challenge from the life of David. And, and I love looking at things in people's lives and going, man, what is the, what is the, the thing in that life that challenges me? What, what do I see in that person or that story or, or that moment or that parable that challenges me? What is the challenge? And, and for me, I felt for us, out of the challenge of David's life, is to live a life surrendered to the will of God. To live a life that says, Lord, your way, not mine. David was this incredible warrior, poet, shepherd, king. He's an amazing, amazing man. He wrote at least probably 73 of the 150 Psalms are attributed to David. I haven't written, I don't know, I think the last time I wrote a poem was when I had to in school. And this is David writing songs. And I mean, he's like a warrior. He's a, he's a rough oak. He cut off Goliath's head. And you can imagine him like, it's, you know, he's not like carrying around his 
hipster sort of seven different shades of HB pencils in his leather homemade satchel to draw on his bespoke paper. He's like, but this is, so the challenge is that David in this moment is so reliant on God. He fears no man, doesn't matter how scary it looks. Coming back to the life of Elah and this moment with Goliath, Israel have the king they wanted. They've tried to DIY it and said, we want a king like the nations who could have gone out before them. This people's champion, Saul, their very own Goliath, their very own champion, but it's not really working out. You see, what Israel had done is they'd made an idol for themselves in the shape of a king. They'd said, we want this, we want this idol, this thing. We, we want a king. He's going to be the one who's going to deliver us. And, and an idol simply, you know, we think sometimes of these little like wooden carved things on shelves and, and things, but... And those can be, but the, the, the idol is more an, an issue in the heart. It's more a thing in your heart. And it and it's really is our attempt at self-reliance and control. We want to make a God that we can, like we can create and we can make it how we want it and we can control that thing and we can, we can make something better than God, essentially, is what we're saying. It's like, I know better, I, I want it to be like this. And that's, that's what a, an idol is and that's what Israel have created here. Now, unfortunately, idolatry never works out too well for us. Christopher J. Gordon says this, he says, when we try out idolatry, God has a remarkable way of making our idols powerless before the very fears that created them in the first place. See, the motivation for making an idol is that we're afraid of something. We fear that something is going to happen or not happen, and so we create this thing so that we can control what, what the outcome is going to be. Instead of going, Submitting and going, I'm going to rely on God. I'm going to trust the goodness and the grace of God as a father. And what he gives me, he gives me. And what he doesn't, he doesn't. Israel cowering before the Philistines' idol, Goliath. You know, God, just a side note, God doesn't say, have no other gods before me because he's insecure. You know, some of the, command, the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. He doesn't say that because he's like, you're not allowed to have any other gods. And he's this insecure, petulant God who's worried that we're going to value something more than him. He tells us, like, don't put any idols, don't have any other gods, because it's good for you. It's good for us not to set up other things in place of God. So, anyway, back to the story. So at this, at this moment, facing the champion, Israel cowering, been there for a while, and the surprising character shows up. The shepherd boy David comes along. Now, all we know of him is he's been anointed. He was a bit overlooked. He's been anointed. And Saul kind of called him in to come and play music because it made him feel nice when David played music. So he shows up to the battle bringing his brother's cheese and um, hears that whoever slays Goliath will be able to marry the king's daughter, which was quite a, quite a step up in society for David and his family. And so he says, all right, I'll go. And Saul kind of says, hey, buddy, not sure if you're our guy. You know, you, you're, not, you're not fought any battles. You've not, you know, you really put the armor on. Armor doesn't fit. Can't really walk in the armor. Like, you know, you're not really good with the spear and thing. And that oak's a champion, bro. He's fought a few battles. He's, he's killed lots of people. And David says this incredible thing. He says, God has prepared me. I fought the lion and the bear and all these things. And, and in all of those things, God had delivered him. 1 Samuel 17, verse 37. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. You see, David's reliance 
wasn't on his own skill. He's not going, oh no, I know I can do this. I've, I've, fought, I've fought some other nine foot six giants the other day and I killed them, so I'm good with this one. No, no, he says, I know who delivered me from those other battles. Even though David fought those things and he, he faced them, he knows who delivered him. And so when he goes out against Goliath, he's going, this is who's going to deliver me. It's not my own strength. And David knew he was good with a slingshot. I mean, obviously, he's a shepherd. He's out there all day catching rabbits and things. But you see, David comes out, spoiler alert, slays Goliath. Picks up some stones, slingshot in the head, Goliath down, story over, cuts off his head with his own sword, with Goliath's sword. Battle over. What happens in that moment, the moment that their idol is destroyed in that, the whole army now goes and pursues the Philistines. And they enforce this victory that David's won. And they rout the Philistines and slay some of them and, and steal some of their stuff. They plunder the, the Philistine army. And David, in this moment, I think for us, is the clearest picture of God's final champion, Jesus. But in this picture, there's another DIY. It's a bit cheesy. My wife laughed at me. But David isn't you. Yeah? It is so easy to read that story and put myself in David's shoes. And be like, yes, Lord, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to be the guy. I'm going to take the giant. Give me five smooth stones, Lord. And the five smooth stones are this and this and that. David is a picture of Jesus. We are the army up on the hill, cowering, eating cheese. Going, yo, I wonder who's going to kill that guy. Some, somebody should do something about that. Somebody should definitely... That guy is being rude. He's saying things that are not right. But if we're honest, that's us. We sit at the back, and we're up there, and we're going, yo, I wish someone would do something about that. Yes, it's bad. Hey, it's bad, but we're fine. We're good? You good? Cut me a full block of cheese, bro. But David isn't, and it may come as a shock to you that David isn't you in the story. David is a picture of Jesus. Jesus is God's champion. Jesus is the one who slays the idols in our lives. He is the one who fights the giants. And I, and I know this is, maybe you've, uh, there's been some modern self-help writing in Christian books and about how we are to slay the Goliaths in our lives. And friends, to be honest, I've tried. We can't. How do we, how do we destroy the very things that we create and set up and worship as idols in our lives? I don't have it in me. I, I desire that thing. I need Jesus to come in and cut that thing's head off. We must rely on him. In the story of, in the story of David and Goliath, it's, it's, a, it's a great picture of how when Jesus won the victory on the cross, that we get to enforce that victory now. We get to live in it and enforce it. It's in his victory that we are more than conquerors, as Romans 8 tells us. It's not because we are special. It's because Jesus has won the victory. Let's make much of him and not of ourselves. We rely on his victory. See, Jesus on the cross is the perfect suffering king who laid down his life. And he went on to this eternal battlefield. And he gives his life as a ransom that defeated our enemy. And he declares of the battle on the cross in John 19 verse 30, it is finished. 
It is finished. It's done. The battle is won. We get to be the army who enforces it. You see, what Jesus is saying, there there is no sin he cannot forgive. There is no idol he cannot slay. There is no battle that he cannot win. There is nothing that you face that Jesus hasn't conquered and can't conquer. Today, I believe, friends, Jesus is calling us to put our confidence and our hope in him as our king. Not set up anything in our lives that would be king and rule and reign and be idols in our lives. To give up all other confidences and other deliverers, other things that we think will deliver us. Some of us put our confidence in wealth. Some of it put us in where we live. Some of us put our confidence in our, in our kids. We think our kids are going to be the things that make us happy. We, that's too much pressure for them. Don't put it on them because they're going to disappoint you and let you down. Some of us put it on our spouses. Same thing. They're going to disappoint you and let you down. Some of us take it on ourselves. We think, man, I've got to be the person that want to do it. Don't. You're going to disappoint yourself and let yourself down. The battle has always belonged to the true champion, Jesus. May we never take his honor as God's true champion. So how? How do we, how do we live surrendered to the king? I just got three quick things, and it's quite simple, and, but I just felt to remind us of these things again this morning. Is that firstly, it starts with faith. It starts with faith. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says this, it says, And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now, faith results in security for us. You see, faith is, and it's in the beginning of chapter 11, being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And then there's the rest of this chapter in chapter 11 of Hebrews. But that, that chapter, this beautiful chapter of faith, is built on who Jesus is. The first 10 chapters of Hebrews are all about how Jesus is greater than, how God was building to Jesus, how he was the great high priest. He was, it's, it's an incredible picture for us of how everything in the Old Testament builds to Jesus. And then we get this chapter 11, this great moment of faith. You see, you can't jump in at chapter 11 and go, oh, I want faith. You've got you to start with who is Jesus. Do you know him? Do you, do you trust? That's where your faith must be. How do I be certain of, of what I can't? How do I be sure of things I don't know? It's Jesus. He's the answer. Start with him. You see, our faith results in security for us because saving faith in Christianity, saving faith according to the Bible as I see it, is not based on our own merits. If it was, we'd be on shaky ground. If we had to earn our salvation, it would be a very tenuous thing. We wouldn't be able to know, like, am I in or am I not? You know, there's a... One of the things in, in Islam is that they never truly know that they are saved. There's a saying, inshallah, God willing, I will be saved. I will make it to heaven. There is no security now. There, it is fear and uncertainty that drives them to live the way they do. And for us, there is a love and a security and a grace that we can know in Jesus that settles in our heart that we are saved and that nothing but nothing can take that away from us. See, the beauty of it is if I don't save myself, if I haven't earned, if I didn't, then I can't unsave myself. Jesus is always the one who pays for my forgiveness as God's true champion. Faith results in us claiming the victory, not trying 
to win it. And, and that claiming the victory, when I, when I say we, we, we enforce Jesus' victory and we plunder the enemy, that's not with words. That's not those little like, cards you get, the name it, claim it, and frame it, and change it on your fridge every day, and like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me before you go into like, an MMA match. That's not sure that that's what that scripture intended. What it is, is that it's a life that is not a life of lip service. See, enforcing the victory, advancing the kingdom is living lives holy. Living lives that live according to the word and not according to the world. Living lives that are not worried about which way the zeitgeist blows tomorrow, but worried about what does God say? What are the principles and what are the patterns that he puts down for me to live? And I'm going to live according to that, regardless of what the world says, whether it's right or wrong or legal or not in the world's eyes. I'm going to choose that way. That's a life of faith. What follows out of that faith is discipline. That's the thing we don't like. We like the faith thing because it seems like nice and it's out there and it's comfy. And, but then we've got to actually walk this thing out. And if you look at the word disciple and discipline, they're kind of the same. And it's because one requires the other. But we're going to live out that faith in Jesus. We need to live out our discipleship. We need to walk it out. And, and we've said it over and over again. And it comes from John Mark Comer. He says, our discipleship to Jesus is essentially being with Jesus to become like Jesus, to do what Jesus did. It's that simple. And it's not like a one first, second, third thing. It's, it's all three all at once, but there is some progression in those things. So we're always with Jesus. We're always becoming like him, and we're always doing what he did. But that's the essence of our discipleship. I, I know there's so much that God does for us supernaturally. He sets us free from things that held us back, and he, he pours out his Holy Spirit and his grace. And I'm sure there's even more that he does for us that we are unaware of protecting us and going before us, and, and that's what a good dad does. And, and he just looks after us, and I'm sure much we don't even realize. But there are things that we need to do in our salvation, and it's because we are saved, not in order to be saved. So the faith is established, we are there, but because of that faith, because of, we have to, I don't know about you, but I have to put disciplines in my life if I'm going to achieve anything. I took up running many years ago, and I never thought I'd do it, but like, uh, I was never a great runner. I think the first time I ran a 5K, I was in matric. That's like, my kids run like 6, 7Ks easy now, and they're not even in high school yet. But I couldn't go out and run a marathon. I had to train, and I had to put disciplines in play. I buy the shoes, put this, like train three, four times a week, and, and it's the same with our faith. We need to put disciplines in place, spiritual disciplines, so that we are formed to be like Christ. Things that are helpful in our lives so that we can become more like it. And maybe you've not heard this language before, or maybe it's different to you, but you'll know the things. There are things like reading your Bible. There are things like praying, fasting maybe even. That's a different one. We don't do that so much anymore. Eh? We're governed by the king of stomach. But you know, there's different kinds of prayers we can pray. Learn the different kinds of prayers. We're going we're gonna to go through a series eventually on, on, on the practice of praying and all the different kinds. Lectio Divina, praying the scripture as you read it interceding, imaginative prayer, singing prayer. I'm not so hot at that one. Dave's, Dave's pretty. I mean, Dave? Disciplines of silence and solitude in a world of busyness. Have you ever tried to be silent? Like, it's easy to keep your mouth shut. You're all doing it real well now. But to be silent in here, crikey, if you can get two minutes, you are like monk level. It's because we are so used to the busyness. 
But the discipline to withdraw and to be in silence and solitude helps us to be with Jesus so that we can become like him, so we can do what he did. Well, how about, here's a great discipline we can put into practice, frugality. You ever tried that one? Modern day, we call it minimalism. But frugality is a better word. Minimalist just means I I look cool because I've only got one picture in my house. Because I don't like DIY, I don't like hanging things. But frugality is a thing of going, I'm going to choose to live on less than I need. I'm going to choose to live well below my means so that I can be generous. I'm going to choose to go without so that I can give. Man, most of us are giving out of like, oh, we've got a little bit left. We're going to give out of that thing. What can I spare? Instead of readjusting, it's a spiritual discipline to be more like Jesus. You see, we are, we are saved by grace alone. These spiritual disciplines are not things that are going to get you saved. They're not things that are going to earn you more love of God. They are good for us. That's all they are. They're good for us in our walk with God. We are saved by grace alone. But it's the same grace that saves us, that calls us to live holy lives, to live lives that bring glory to God. That doesn't try to make Him popular or cool. You know, when we worry too much about what people think of God and try and make God popular, we've got the focus a little bit wrong. We're worried more about people than about God. But anyway, Titus 2, 11 and 12 says this. It says, for the grace of God has appears that offers salvation to all people. So, so it's, it's God's grace that offers salvation to everybody and anybody. You see, Christianity is the most inclusive religion in the world. It, it, the, the offer is there. God has given it. And Paul goes on it. It's it, the grace that is, God has offered us, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. If you want to live an upright, godly, holy life, you need more grace. Grace doesn't mean you can go and do what you like. We sometimes have a skewed understanding of that thing. Oh, you know, it's God's grace that will let me... No, no, the grace teaches you to live right. It's an incredible thing, that. And the final thing in these three things. So it's, it's faith, and then what follows is discipline, and the final thing is the result, is glorification. And I, I know that's a very like early 2000s, late 90s kind of Christianese word, but it's, I couldn't find a better one. But it's, uh, if we hold, uns- what it means is that one day we will be glorified with Jesus, and that's where it comes from. So one day we will, when we die or when he comes back, whichever happens first, we will, our salvation will be complete and that's where Paul writes, some, he says, you know, salvation, past tense happened, you are being saved, you will being saved. So it, don't get confused and think, well, am I saved, am I not? There's just, there's three elements to it. And so that thing of, if we hold unswervingly to the faith to the end of our lives on earth, we'll see the reality of that which we now believe by faith. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. If we, if we live trusting Jesus and not relying on what our eyes see, and what the world tells us is important, then in the end, we'll be exalted with Jesus to that glorification and the resurrection at the end. David is a beautiful picture of Jesus coming. But David is not the main player in the story. Jesus is. And you see, that's where the Israelites got it wrong, is they were looking for another David. They weren't looking for Jesus. And they held out for this military commander who would come in as a great political liberator. And Jesus said, no, it's far more than that. Far, far more than just not living under an oppressive regime. 
You can live under the oppressive regime if you know Jesus. So I just felt as we close to pray for, for us. And I felt there was kind of two things I want to pray for. And the first one is if you've, if you've never put your faith in Jesus, if you, if you don't know that saving faith, if you've never come to that, if what I'm talking about and you're going like, yes, I don't know that. That's, I've never come to that moment of going, that deciding moment, that kind of watershed, this is the moment where I need to give surrender. Like the surrender starts for me today. I remember that moment for me. It was as clear as a bell. I was sitting on the windowsill of a small little stone chapel in the Michalisburg on a Wednesday night. I think it was April 14th, 2005. Bang like that. Some of us, it's not that clear. It happens over time. There's no right or wrong way. But I just felt to make an opportunity this morning as we gathered here to have that moment. So let's pray together. Let's close our eyes and and pray. So if you've never put your faith in Jesus as your king, the sovereign of your life in whom you trust for salvation, maybe if you're tired of, of trying to save yourself and failing, then today is the day, I believe, that the champion of heaven comes to you and says, surrender. And I want to implore you to trust in him as your savior and as your king and to give your life completely to him and to declare this morning that Jesus is Lord. And so if that's you, I want to ask you to respond. And we're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to do anything that's going to make you weird. But I believe there is a, there is a physical response that we need to do, even as we're praying. And if that's you, I'm just going to ask you to put your hand up and say, I want Jesus in my life. I want to surrender my life to you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Okay, you can put your hands down. I'll see you. Thank you. Beautiful. Wonderful. I want to surrender for the first time. This is a, sal- a saving moment. If that's you, and I'm going to ask, hey, everybody, won't you pray these things? Keep your eyes closed. You can pray with me, but I'm going to like a call and repeat thing. So if you can pray with me, and if you're praying this for the first time, let these words settle in your heart as you pray them out loud. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I come to you today broken and tired. I give you all that I am. Today I surrender to your kingship. Thank you that you have paid for the forgiveness of my sins. I will live the rest of my life to honor you. Amen. Just stay in that moment of prayer. Stay where you are. That's beautiful. Secondly, if you, maybe you know you're saved. You, you know that you know you're certain of the saving faith that the Holy Spirit has ignited in you. And, and even if it was a long time ago, and, but, but you've been fighting your own battles. You've been DIYing. You've been trying to slay your own giants and idols in your life. I believe there is a grace here for you this morning to be set free. If you're tired of that struggle, if you're tired of coming up against those things, and I believe that God wants us to return to a faith that is surrendered completely on Jesus, not on anything else of ourselves. If that's you, I'm going to ask you to stand. Let's be bold.
That's a beautiful look. Again, I'm going to ask as we, as some of us stand, and I'm going to ask us to, to do the same thing again and pray a prayer again. So, Lord, I commit my life to you, to being surrendered to your ways. I return again to the faith that I once felt. Won't you make that faith alive in me? Holy Spirit, I ask that you revive in me a spirit of courage and boldness to live a life in the promises and directions of God Almighty. Jesus, come and lead me to the Father. Come and lead me into all holiness as I surrender to you every day. Amen.